Hello, Pastor Danny here. Welcome to Kaimiki Christian Church. So glad to have you online with us. Feel free to to chat. We had wonderful worship and we can continue to engage in worship and uh, in discussion and in chat online. That's okay. Uh, I'm glad you're here with us. Um, We're in a series called Wave Walkers and it's about walking with Jesus through the storms of life. And over the past few weeks since we've started this series, we've seen examples from the Bible of people who have walked on the stormy waters. You know, people like Job, Job who lost everything. He lost his possessions. He lost his family. He lost his health. Um, Job faced a crisis on a catastrophic level, and yet he remained faithful to the Lord. Or the Apostle Paul, who faced crisis after crisis, and even in his own unknown ailment uh, that he talks about in 2 Corinthians, um, which we don't know what the thorn was. He talked about a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. The scriptures don't give us enough of a medical um, diagnosis, if you will. But whatever it was, it was painful. It tormented him. It beat him down. You probably don't use the word torment very often. I know that when I hear that word, it reminds me of another word. It reminds me of the word torture. And um, this ailment, this thorn, this torment was beating Paul down. But Paul continued to be a wave walker. And uh, in spite of the pain, Paul even said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And God's grace has this way of showing up at our weakest moments so that we have the opportunity to point people to Jesus. Or King David, who struggled with feelings of despair and some of it of his own doing, but a lot of it not of his own doing. I mean, this idea that King Saul wanted to take his life. King Saul had dispatched what would have amounted to be a SEAL Team 6 during the day to go get David. David learned to trust in the Lord and he experienced walking on the stormy waters with God, even infamously through some of the great sins and tragedies that occurred in his life. He ultimately uh, placed his faith in the Lord. All of them, though, transformed by the power of God to walk on the stormy waters. None of them did this on their own. They all turned their eyes upon Jesus. And that's what we want to do. And that's what we want to be, a people who have been transformed transformed by the power of Jesus to walk on the stormy waters of life, a people who have turned their eyes upon Jesus. And this series, Wave Walkers, is as relevant today as it was in history so many years ago. But today, though, we're going to talk about the ultimate wave walker. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to look to Jesus and how he gives us confidence and gives us a model of companionship to face life's storms. So turn with me to chapter 6 of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. We're going to look at the passage in verses 45 through 51. And if you don't have a Bible handy, uh, there is a Bible tab uh, that you can refer to. There's also a notes tab where the scripture passage is outlined for you. In fact, the sermon outline is in there. So whether you have your Bible handy or not, you can always refer to the notes tab. But uh, before we read, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. So let's open our Bibles to Mark 6 and read verses 45 through 51. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. 
After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Well, here's the setup. Jesus and his 12 disciples have just fed the 5,000 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. A miracle performed by Jesus, multiplying the five loaves and the two fish to feed thousands more than just the 5,000 that are recounted in Mark's gospel because women and children weren't counted. So they're on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to go to Bethsaida, which is not very far from where Jesus just fed everyone. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't that large, but it is temperamental, about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, uh, kind of an oval shape. In fact, in terms of its area, it's one-third the size of Lake Tahoe. It's really not that large, and no, it's really not a sea, even though it's called that out of tradition. An interesting fact, it's the lowest freshwater lake anywhere in the world at nearly 700 feet below sea, below sea level. So that's like standing on a paddleboard at Ala Moana Beach and taking two, two Ala Moana hotels down below the water. That's the Sea of Galilee relative to sea level, relative to Ala Moana Beach. And it's surrounded by 2,000 foot mountains. And these mountains have cold air that rush down to the Sea of Galilee where it meets warm, moist air coming up off the waters. And when these two pressure fronts collide, it causes storms to appear on the water with very little warning. And since the lake is relatively contained and shallow, the storms tend to pack quite a punch for such a small space. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. So the disciples are getting into a boat and are heading out to Bethsaida as Jesus tells them to. And this is not a tiny boat. Um, It's made for a fishing crew in all likelihood, probably around 30 feet long, several feet wide. You know, archaeologists have found these ancient fishing boats boats in the area uh, down in the lake bed many of them probably wrecked by these infamous Sea of Galilee storms. And the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 has just finished, and Jesus has sent the crowds home. The disciples are a little tired, not because they just cared for thousands of people, and surely that would have made them tired, but they've experienced tragedy. You see, they've just heard of the execution of John the Baptist, and this really would have been a serious wake-up call for the disciples, for these followers of Jesus, because it would have been a reality check that following Jesus could lead to death. And I can also imagine that it would have hit Jesus pretty hard. Jesus and John the Baptist were related. So them being all friends, the death of John the Baptist would have affected all of them. But we see that Jesus prays. And isn't that encouraging to see if you're one of his disciples? Jesus praying to God the Father, 
right after their miraculous feeding of the 5,000. By the way, a little sidebar here. I don't know about you, but uh, Jesus reminds me that we need to pray in the tragedies and the triumphs. Uh, I don't mean a token, thank you, Lord, but getting down on our knees and praying, thank you, Lord, let me tell you why. Wouldn't you be ecstatic if your kids did this like, instead of saying, thanks, Dad, they'd say, thanks, Dad, for this and for this and for this. Getting down on their knees while they do it would be awesome too, but I digress. I wonder if Jesus, though, is praying for his friends, maybe for protection over their lives, the execution of John the Baptist being fresh on their minds, or praying for their safety in general, you know, maybe for the people he just ministered to. You know, we don't know. We, but we do know that Jesus took the opportunity to pray, to really pray. In John's gospel, it tells us that Jesus fervently prayed for his disciples. In John 17, we see that Jesus prayed for all disciples, not just the ones there and then, but also for you and me here and now. That's right. Jesus prayed for all of us, and he still prays, even in the storm that you find yourself in. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and he prays for you and me in a few areas. He prays for your protection in John 17, 15, that you would be kept from evil. He also prays for your empowerment, that you would be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit, sanctified. That word means set apart, but also means that his spirit dwells within you, his Holy Spirit living in you in John 17, 17. He prays for your presence, that you would be united with him. Jesus can't wait to have you with him, John 17, 24. Having said all that, Let's turn our attention back to the passage in Mark 6, verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now let's pause right there. Jesus saw his disciples straining at the oars. Jesus sees them in the storm, straining and struggling. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, Hebrews 13, 8. As Jesus saw his disciples then, he sees you now in the storm, straining and struggling. And as Jesus prayed for his disciples then, past tense, prayed, he prays for you now, present tense. Jesus sees you. Let me repeat that. Jesus sees you. He's not far off. And he sees your struggle in the storm. And his heart is so moved with compassion that he steps out onto the water for you. Let's read that verse again, verse 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. By the way, these disciples were struggling for hours in the storm. Remember, they had just set out right after dinner. And now it's nearly dawn of the next day when Jesus steps out to them. So easily, 
they were struggling for nine hours. That's a long time to be straining and struggling on a boat caught in a storm. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out. Were these disciples superstitious, delirious, plain forgetful that Jesus literally multiplied bread and fish the night before? That they were so terrified when they saw him and that they didn't recognize him? Yes, yes, to all of the above, okay? They were scared. Verse 50, because they all saw him and were terrified, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Jesus will not lead you where he himself would not go. He gives you the courage and the confidence to face life's challenges, even as you're afraid. But we must cry out for his help and not try to manage fear by figuring out ways to keep it at bay or by figuring out ways to silence it. Jesus extends grace to you like he did to his own disciples who were afraid. They cried out and you can cry out to him. There is no shame in crying out to Jesus. Let me say that again. There's no shame in crying out to Jesus. There's no shame in being afraid. It's okay. In fact, there is an assumption that you will be afraid at times in life. And I know that sometimes people say that for the Christian, there is no room for fear. By the way, uh, read David's Psalm in Psalm 56. But I think that saying that really dismisses the reality that Christians, good Christians, experience and feel fear. And why? Because we live in a broken world that went off the rails starting back in the garden. I was 15 years old in 1986 when Operation El Dorado Canyon took place. And I was living in a little town called Brackley, just a few miles from Royal Air Force Base, Upper Hayford. Jet bombers took off from bases in England, including mine, in the AM hours of April 15, 1986, and bombed Libya in retaliation for a club bombing 10 days earlier in Germany. Now, I mentioned this story because it's probably the closest I've ever felt like the disciples here. Uh, I was afraid when we heard the news that morning I really can't say I ever feared for my life about anything, anything except maybe for that incident. You see, our bases were on high alert. We were warned to be on the lookout for, sus for suspicious packages at school bus stops. We were kids being told to look out for suspicious packages at our bus stops. Jets flying overhead at night would make my heart pound thinking it was Libyan jets retaliating. Armed guards were at our school in case of an attack. And uh, one guard quickly pulled me and my friend aside because we were running from one end of the campus to the other just to get to our class in time. And he scared us because he had his gun at his side and he was asking us questions like, what are your names? You know, Where are you going? You know, that's scary stuff, okay? And all this craziness was making me fearful of 
what I thought would be an attack at any moment. I was afraid for me and my family. And there are times when we are afraid. Life is certain to have those moments. And maybe there shouldn't be rooms set up in a Christian's life that are given over to fear, but I do know that sometimes fear just enters the room uninvited. Luke 12.32 records a precious imperative from Jesus on the subject of worry and fear. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Do you sense the tenderness in Jesus's voice when he says little flock? For those of you who have children, you know what it's like when they're afraid. And what wells up inside of you as a parent is a feeling of joy as you get this privilege to hold close and comfort this little child who's afraid, who looks to you as a source of strength. Don't be afraid, little one. Daddy's here and you're safe with me. Dr. Ed Welch, counselor and faculty member at Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, has this to say. God knows we are vulnerable. He knows that, like sheep, we often feel defenseless and out of control in a very difficult world. The reason for not being afraid, then, has everything to do with God as our protector and help. Chip Dodd, in his book, The Voice of the Heart, says that fear makes us face ourselves and reveals our neediness. It reveals our need for Jesus. Fear reminds us to cry out to Jesus. Verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. You might not feel much like someone who can navigate the storms, much less walk on waves right now. Uh, You're exhausted and maybe you can't see what's ahead. Um, Perhaps you've stopped rowing and you just want to give up. If that's you, I want you to reread verse 51 with me. Let's do that, okay? If that's you, reread this verse with me, verse 51. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. Then he climbed into the boat with them. I want you to think of two things right now, if that's you. What kind of boat are you in, and who's with you? What kind of boat are you in, and who's with you? Are you in a one-person canoe? You know, one-person canoes were never meant for storms. There's a saying, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. So you don't take one-person canoes out in bad weather to hone your voyaging skills. You're not going to become a good sailor that way. And you don't take them out on long voyages. You take one-person canoes out for a day trip. Now, in contrast to a one-person canoe, I think of outrigger canoes, those mighty vessels meant for the long journey. They were built to withstand the waves. The ancient Polynesians knew what they were doing with their outrigger canoes. They were in boats with one another, headed in the same direction on a voyage together. And do you know what an outrigger canoe looks like at Kaimiki Christian Church? It looks like an Ohana group. And we've got a whole fleet of them going. 
going in the same direction on a voyage together to sing God's glory, to make disciples along the journey who are fired up for Jesus and who want to love others around them. So we don't do this alone. You were not made to face the challenges and the voyage of life here on earth alone in a one-person canoe. You were made to be in an outrigger with others, headed in the same direction on a voyage together. And that's what families do. And that's what churches do. They follow Jesus together in community, hitting the ups and downs of life, the ups and downs of the ocean waves, rejoicing together, straining together. When you can't row, someone will row for you. And when that person can't row, you row for them. That's what happens in an outrigger. You know, even Jesus needed community. Jesus was no hermit. He was not cloistered away trying to refrain from being dirtied by the world in a one-person canoe. His home base was a community of friends. He and 12 other disciples to share life with. And he went out and he made friends with the destitute, the downcast, the poor and the sick. But Jesus did it in the context of community and reliance on God's power and provision. Your life will be changed when you're willing to get in the boat with others. And that doesn't mean the storms will go away. Jesus sent those disciples out on the Sea of Galilee where storms were all too common. You're going to face a storm and probably more storms because that's the broken world we live in. But what you don't want to do is face those storms alone. There will be times when you can't row anymore because you don't have the strength. And maybe that's you right now. If that's you, I want you to take a step out in faith today. There are canoes setting sail right now. Ohana groups with a seat just for you. And other groups brand new and ready to set out with a new crew into the waters. If you're facing the storms of life in a one-person canoe, I want you to think about exchanging your one-person canoe with an outrigger taking up an oar, and joining others on an outrigger to follow Jesus. If you're ready to do that, I want you to click the link that says, I want to join an Ohana group. It should be appearing in right now in the chat room. Click that, fill out a simple form, and we'll provide you with information on Ohana groups that you can join. Canoes that are setting out on a voyage to do life together. Don't do this alone. Jesus can transform our lives. And I've seen this happen more readily when people are in deep community and deep relationships with other followers of Christ. And as you share your life with others, you're gonna build strong relationships that will deepen your faith. You'll be given gifts and abilities to help those in need as you encourage others to follow Jesus. And you're gonna serve others. And it's wonderful to see that happen. I think of the book of Acts, the Acts of the early church, and one of those acts that define the community of believers in chapter two. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Jesus sees you and he hears your cry. He doesn't want you to be alone. And allow me to end this message with these words once again from Jesus, the one who is faithful and true, your confidence, your protector, and your help, and the one who is the ultimate wave walker. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. God bless you all.